0: And welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with author and marketing professor Dr. Zoe Chance to discuss the topic of influence. Zoe earned her doctorate from Harvard University and currently is an Assistant Professor of Marketing at the Yale School of Management. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Scientific American, and Psychology Today. Her framework for behavioral change is the foundation for Google's global food policy. And before academia, she managed a $200 million segment of the Barbie brand at Mattel. Zoe's new book, is an international bestseller entitled, Influence is Your Superpower, and was the main focus of our conversation. Zoe and I spent a good portion of our chat discussing the process of influence and how the sequence of messaging elements is crucial to the outcome. Likeability and authenticity, or even perceived authenticity, are important first steps when influencing others, And this is an idea that is relevant in all areas where influence is found, whether it be marketing, politics, workplace dynamics, or interpersonal relationships. As her book mentions in detail, you want to be someone that people want to say yes to. We also talked about one of the biggest mistakes you can make when engaging in influence, which is making someone feel like they are being persuaded. Humans have a tendency to throw up defense mechanisms whenever this happens, which is why overly aggressive attempts to persuade often fail. It also explains why attempts to educate people often fail if the topic feels like it is calling into question someone's worldview. Zoe was an overall delight to speak with, and at the very least, I hope that you come away from our conversation 10% 10% more open to being influential in your everyday life after hearing her enthusiasm for this topic. Enjoy. Okay, I am here with my guest today, Zoe Chance. Thank you so much for being on today.
1: Thank you, Ryan, for making a rockin' podcast and inviting me to be part of it.
0: Well, thank you for the compliment. Uh, and I will compliment you as well. Uh, I just finished your new book, Influence is Your Superpower. The science of winning hearts, sparking change, and making good things happen. Uh, I, I loved going through it. I like uh, all the personal anecdotes that you that you put in there. Uh, the book is about uh, influence and persuasion. Now, it's possible that some people might think of of persuasion and influence as sort of this this sort of uh, dirty activity that is done by by car salesmen, but but we know that influence is a little bit more nuanced than that uh, and it encompasses more, more types of behaviors and, and, and things like that. So uh, to start, how do, you, how do you frame this idea of persuasion in an ethical way?
1: You're right, Ryan, that a lot of people have mixed feelings about it. And influence is this weird thing that we want to have, but we don't want to do. And in surveys, I've found that the majority of people associate the word influence and especially influence strategies or influence tactics with negative connotations like being manipulative or being greedy. However, almost all of us want to be more influential. And whether you want to be an influencer kind of depends on what generation you are. Some people think it's horrible. Some people think it's something to aspire to. I think ultimately we, most of us, the majority of us are kind, well-intentioned people who don't want to be pushy. And we don't like people who are trying to get us to do stuff. And we really would love to have an influence on other people by the example that we lead by, Um, or yeah, because we're, we're somebody that other people admire, but actually that's kind of lazy and it's really dropping the ball and it's risky and an absolute tragedy that some of the smartest, best, kindest people will step back from learning about what it takes to be influential because there are a whole lot of folks who are greedy and they are trying to figure out everything that they can to be as influential as possible and take as much as they can so if we are not learning how to be more influential ourselves then we're just leaving the world in the hands of the takers
0: yeah the 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 different the distinction that i always go back to is sort of Authenticity, right? I mean, you know, the that sort of classic uh, car salesman or or digital marketing version of of persuasion is uh, it's often very transactional. They want you to to buy something, but I mean, if you're really uh, speaking from a true place, I, I feel like you know that's the type of influence that is is more organic and it's more you know my motive might be i want to influence you cuz i want you to be healthier and so it it seems a little bit a little bit more palpable that way
1: i partly agree with you and i also partly struggle with this frame of authenticity because of course you want to feel authentic, I want to feel authentic, I'm going to like you more, and vice versa, if we think each other are authentic. But what this also means is that there is a high incentive and likelihood that when we're trying to influence people we will self-deceive. And this is another whole stream of my research is on self-deception. What ends up happening is that when, like, let's just take the domain of sales. And I've worked in unglamorous sales jobs and i've met lots of wonderful sales people so the memorable sales people tend to be smarmy and the the best sales people we don't think of them when we think of sales because it didn't feel like a sales experience it felt like a conversation right, right. when we're trying to sell something and i remember a specific situation where I was working at Mattel as a brand manager, and this was when I first started, and we had the brand of SpongeBob toys, and their SpongeBob movie was coming out, and I was the SpongeBob brand manager, and I'm supposed to go during Toy Fair and pitch our new SpongeBob toys to, it's 40 times during the week where we have CEOs of all these different companies coming in, like toy companies, but also including Walmart and Target and these even big companies like that have toys as their big Christmas sellers Mm -hmm. to bring people into the store. I hated SpongeBob. I hated SpongeBob so much. I couldn't watch the show. I didn't find it funny. I didn't get it at all, but I manufactured this enthusiasm for the SpongeBob line, trying to draw on this authentic goodwill and love that, you know, I have as a human And sold the hell out of the Spongebob toys. And I won a prize that year out of all of the brand managers at Mattel for the best presentation. And the feedback I got from senior management was when you pitched, when you shared the Spongebob line, your enthusiasm for the toys really came through. And I had been trying to persuade myself that I loved Spongebob, but I failed. So I felt inauthentic. And like a hack. And, you know, I left Mattel and went to grad school, but that was just because I failed at the self-deception part. If I were successful at the self-deception part, then that would be kicking in to tell me SpongeBob is the greatest thing on earth. And I'm not, and, and I feel mm-hmm. authentic and other people feel authentic, but maybe SpongeBob wasn't the really, wasn't really the thing that I love. So, um, I just think when we're talking about enthusiasm Mm -hmm. for something we're trying to persuade people of, it's complicated. Ryan, have you ever heard or read that um, pharmaceutical companies try to recruit college cheerleaders? And there are entire consultancies that recruit college cheerleaders to go into sales jobs because they know how to manufacture enthusiasm. And they seem- authentic
0: yeah that that's interesting the i mean from from you know you're talking about manufacturing enthusiasm i mean yeah i i think you know you kind of in your story you were able to to manufacture that um it's a little disturbing that that someone wants to recruit uh cheerleaders to do that because i feel like it's it's just going to reinforce this sort of artificial transactional nature of being persuasive, being persuasive. I mean, you know, I, I, I definitely don't want more inauthentic careers popping up for, for young cheerleaders, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, But it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me though, that, that you see, uh, you see that, I mean, uh, just the, just, you know, if you take a, you know, a young, attractive female, it's, Automatically going to be disarming if you're pitching something to males, I would imagine, and feel like you could just build, you build all the the sales skills on top of this this base of sort of a a primitive liking, right? People are are going to be drawn towards these cheerleader types, but uh, I I was not aware of that. No,
1: I I find it so interesting, and it's not it's not at all the same as recruiting somebody like models. Right. Like like rest, you know, so you go to a restaurant in New York and the hostess is going to be super attractive, but she's not a cheerleader. She looks great. But, you know, you might feel even kind of like awkward if it's a fancy restaurant, like I walk in and I feel out of my element because here's this cold, fancy person there at the door. But a cheerleader makes you feel good and she feels good. And this this is the currency that they have to offer. Um, so it's, it's just this complicated element of what it takes to become influential without deceiving ourselves. And I know we're like just going <laughs> way deep into the complicated part before going to the basics. And you brought up at the beginning, this idea of transactional influence in contrast to something like, long-term relationships, right? And right. how you and I influence each other if we're friends or if we're colleagues or if we're in some some other kind of relationship. And that relational influence is exactly what I focus on and what I want to teach and how I want to help people thrive and become more influential. Just like you said, stepping away from the transactional piece of what can I get you to do?
0: So <clears throat> early in the book you talk about uh you talk about an idea that I've actually uh discussed with some of my other guests, which is this dual mind or dual process nature of of human cognition so you know, ba- for the listeners basically this idea that that we have uh, sort of these two different areas of our uh, of our mind uh one of them, the system one is uh is is very primitive it's Based off of uh, our more primitive structures, fear, anger, stuff like that. It's the automatic decision part of our of our mind, versus this other system which is more deliberate and calculating and thoughtful. It's the right. It's when when you're thinking or contemplating. It's this sort of dynamic of of reason and emotion. And you talk a lot about that in your book. Um, Why is this concept important? for understanding influence?
1: This concept of system one and system two, which are basically categorized, of course, exactly as you said, and for anyone who's really interested in this, it's worth going a little deeper than we are right now in the show because system one does a lot more than just process emotions. But the from a perspective of persuasion and influence, It's critical that we have this dichotomy in our mind of the dual processes because persuasion doesn't work the way that we think, because we are so often focused on making a good argument so that the conscious processing part that you were discussing of system two could make the air quotes right or best decision, where that process is costly, effortful, and much more rare than it seems versus the other process, the quick emotional habitual biased snap judgment one, system one, happens instantaneously and all the time. So when we're trying to persuade somebody, their first reaction to us, to our ideas, whatever it is that we're bringing to the table is going to be the snap judgment that comes from that unconscious, intuitive, emotional, habitual place. And then only sometimes, maybe they will do the effortful cogitation to process a rational argument. When we have this perspective, it's much easier to understand that the process of reason is biased. It's always biased. Reason itself is a persuasion process where you begin with a hypothesis and you try to find reasons to prove it's true or prove that it's not true. And the hypothesis will always come from that snap judgment of the system one piece. So a snap judgment could be, I like Ryan. So when he invites me to do something, I'm inclined to say yes before I even hear what it is that he wants to ask me about. Or I dislike Zoe, so I don't want to say yes to whatever it is that she's going to ask me about. Or it might be that um, Ryan is a professor from Florida. And so I have all of these assumptions about what it means to be a professor from Florida. And he teaches statistics. And what do I think about somebody like that, right? Um, Or about the idea that you're, doesn't have to be personal. You know, we're both white, like, People will have judgments about that, that when they're going through the deliberate effortful part, if this even happens, then they're only considering information that got through the unconscious filter. And the way that they're processing it is either trying to prove or disprove something that they assumed or are in the habit of doing or deciding or have some bias toward or against. When we're trying to persuade somebody, we can't just give them the facts, the argument, the analysis without first starting with this, this considering that the whole process begins with their habits, instincts, intuitions, emotions, snap judgments. And if we have those on our side, then it's easy for them persuade themselves with the facts and the information that we give them of what they already wanted to decide and if we don't then they could easily be going in the opposite direction We, we tend to think we do more of this conscious deliberative processing than the unconscious part but it's just because that's the conscious piece and the other piece is unconscious so we don't know it
0: yeah you start to see it a little bit more when uh when when, uh, especially in political campaigns, presidential campaigns, um, rarely does a candidate sort of lose their appeal because of a policy. If somebody loses their appeal, they, you know, they had some bonehead comment or something that turned people off, which was which is all that in, intuitive judgment stuff, right? And so I yeah, you know, I hope people during these election time, they can they can sort of start to understand that it's 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 the the role of this intuitive judgment piece and how it's it's sort of leading the way, right? Because we know it always comes first. and then all the if we have time to process, then we can do all the the deeper, the deeper stuff, right?
1: Yeah. And politics is so rife with emotional decision making that um, even when neuroscientists are scanning people's brains while they're making decisions about politics or reading arguments about politics, they find that those decisions are processed in the emotional areas of the brain rather than the more rational areas. And of course, this is an oversimplification to even say rational and emotional areas, but what the activation looks like is emotional processing versus rational processing. And can I go super nerdy for a sec, Brian?
0: Sure, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs>
1: there, there's this study that I love that is a follow-up to a very cool um, an original piece of research by Alexander Todorov at Princeton that was looking at the effect of these snap judgments and um, politics and voting. And I write in the book about Todorov's study and just in the footnotes about this other study that I'll share, but it's cool and I think listeners will like it. Uh What Alexander Todorov finds is that he can predict with 70% accuracy which candidate voters elected, regardless of political party and incumbency, by just flashing on the screen for one second, two faces and asking people which one looks more competent. Mm -hmm. And he ran this with... Um, this was, I think it was gubernatorial races, and I, I could have, it might be state Congress or something, but I think it was gubernatorial races in other states that people didn't, rec- faces that people didn't recognize. So it's crazy that for one second, you could look at this face, these faces and be like, that guy. I like that guy, right? Mm-hmm. And we, like you said, people don't lose elections based on policy decisions, which is absolutely insane. Taking this even farther, um, a researcher named John Antonakis in Switzerland replicated the study with children at a children's museum mm-hmm. where he showed faces of people who were running for parliament in other areas. Actually, this was even in another country. I think they were showing parliamentarians in France. And they asked children, which one would you want to be the captain of your boat? And so right. kids We're just choosing. I like that guy. I like that guy. And again, 70 percent accuracy in who Mm -hmm. voters elected to be their political representatives. Mm -hmm. And these are really consequential decisions. And it's also kind of crazy that this happens even in situations where we have such strong partisanship and political divides where most people, at least in the U.S., are not going to jump to the other side of the fence in Mm -hmm. these sorts of decisions. But what we do is we go out or we stay home Mm -hmm. when it's voting day.
0: So. So if we if we are aware that that there's this sort of snap judgment piece that that has to be uh, has to be dealt with. Right. are there contexts, like what are the contexts where, where the facts can be persuasive?
1: Thank you for asking and bringing this up because of course, facts are really important. I'm not saying they're not important. They're just important after people are already interested. And ideally, after they're already at least considering the hypothesis that you want them to consider
0: right. yeah, the and it makes sense to uh, you know I I see uh, uh, you see advertisements on uh, billboards and and magazines and stuff like that or things that you see on the road. And it always bothers me because every now and then you'll see something where there's a, a ton of text on a billboard. And it's like, well, somebody somebody missed the note that you only have about two seconds of attention, so you know it's not going to be enough to process any information. And it's surprising that 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 uh, that marketers sometimes get this wrong. I. It also reminds me of I was uh, I was in a meeting. We had sort of a a, a team building thing at, at uh, with a bunch of instructors uh, where I teach, and we were. Uh, tasked with coming up with a a a campaign for or or a, a persuasive message for brushing your teeth, how do you encourage people to brush your teeth? And uh, someone raised their hand. And they said, "Well, I you know I think uh, you know you got to drill home the the health aspect. It's it's healthy and and, and sort of list off these individual uh, benefits from brushing your teeth." And I, and I stood back and I was like, I was like. How do I politely disagree without causing a a ruckus? And I was like, you know, I, I kind of disagree with that. I I think if if tooth, I mean, if 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 messages about health got people to brush their teeth, we would never have to have a conversation about brushing your teeth. It's obviously healthy for you. But you know, I I I had mentioned that that let you know you need something primitive, something that speaks to speaks to that snap judgment or that emotion, like. You know, your people don't want to look at an ugly smile or something like that, and that's that's kind of you know speaking to the primitive. You you used to see the same thing with smoking campaigns where sometimes they would get that wrong. They would focus too much on the facts and not enough on that initial uh, pull in. Um, uh, did, did you do you see a lot of examples like these in terms of uh, large marketing campaigns where they're they're missing that emotional piece right off the bat?
1: Absolutely. And there was a study that was done by market researchers in the UK that looked at 1400 ad campaigns mm-hmm. and they categorized These are TV ad campaigns and they categorized them as this is system one, intuitive. This is system two, analytical, or it's a combination. And then they called the companies and they asked, hey, how profitable was that ad campaign for you? And what they found out was not surprising to you and me that the emotional ad campaigns were far more profitable than the analytical ad campaigns. But what was also interesting to me was that in this study, at least, when you combined emotions and analysis or numbers or data, it didn't do better than emotions alone. It did worse, it was in the middle. And this is because that moment of contact in an ad campaign is not the time to take that next step and give them the facts, the data, the information. You don't have enough time. This is just an initial outreach where the best that you can hope for is that they have internalized an emotional experience, including curiosity. Doesn't mean you have to tell some incredible story and make them cry, but they've internalized an experience that will be memorable, that Mm -hmm. the next time they see it, they're going to recognize it. And eventually they're going to be either motivated to take the action when they have the opportunity or, you know, go online and create that. So this idea of what's the appropriate approach for this point of contact is really important. Mm -hmm. So when, say, we're talking about brushing your teeth, right? And the idea of like, nobody wants to see an ugly smile. Yeah, if it's a, a billboard by the side of the highway, I don't know that that's the the greatest place to have a t- toothbrushing campaign because it's right. not what people are thinking about when they're driving. But I,
0: I know we have an important right. dinner to get to, honey. But I need to buy a toothbrush. This this billboard <laughs> right. this, this billboard has been very persuasive, <laughs> right?
1: Right. But at least you know it could get you thinking, and you know if you've got a picture of somebody's horrible teeth and it's blown up to be sixty feet wide or whatever, it it can be a memorable thing, and then there can also be a place for the health benefits of brushing your teeth. It's just that those aren't, it's not the same context right. as the emotional or the visual, especially the visual message, right? right. So like, if it is the, the Crest toothpaste website, yeah, there should be a place on the website that explains if you brush your teeth, and I don't know about toothbrushing, but if you floss your teeth, you're going to live two years longer yeah. than people who don't floss their teeth. Now, right. this is correlation; it's not causation. Right. But there's data that's important that people can go. Oh, but that's after they were already interested.
0: Right. So, so let's let's move on a little bit uh, beyond sort of this the 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 ads and more into like the interpersonal aspect of influence. So, you know, you discuss a, a, a lot of different. Principles that you can apply in sort of sort of one on one settings uh, for individuals that are engaging in public speaking. Uh, I really like. Uh, I think my favorite, uh, most memorable analogy from the book is probably the the kindly brontosaurus. I think that was the the one that stuck out the most. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and and how that relates to influence?
1: Sure. I love the kindly brontosaurus also. And this is not my term. A journalist named Jessica Winter wrote about this in Slate. I shared it with some students Mm -hmm. years ago, and it's been one of the favorite techniques. And it's because people are really lazy, definitely including me. Pretty much all of us. If you were to just predict that how people will respond to your attempt to influence them is by, uh, (laughs) being really lazy, doing as little as possible, you'll probably be right. And people love the kindly brontosaurus because it takes almost nothing to do it. It it, like, that's the essence is doing nothing. The idea is that you have asked somebody for something and they didn't say yes right away. And you are like a large, friendly, harmless, but impossible to ignore dinosaur you're just sticking around in view so that they can't forget about you. Maybe you're checking back in. So let's say um, that, uh, uh, so an extreme example of Mm -hmm. success with the Kindly Brontosaurus would be a story, a guy named Bob Goff who wrote this wonderful book named Love Does, shares in his book, where he had applied to law school at Pepperdine University and he got waitlisted and he didn't get in anywhere else. And his grades were terrible. He desperately wanted to go to Pepperdine. And he shows up to and meets the dean and says, hey, I, you know, I'm on the wait list. I'd love to get in. And the dean says, there are no spots for you. And Bob is like, okay, I'll, I'm just going to sit down on the bench outside your office. And because Bob is really likable, you can't not like Bob. Everybody likes Bob. And he's putting himself in view, but he's not being aggressive about it Every time the dean comes in, like every day, I don't know how long this takes, a week or so, maybe it's even longer. Dean comes back in and Bob is like, hey, all you got to say, dean, is just just say, Bob, go buy your books. And he's good natured about it. And dean's like, you not going to happen. Not going to. Ha- hey, Bob. And after a week or so, the dean is finally like, OK, Bob, go buy your books. Okay. So it's not. frequent going to happen that the dean of a law school is going to be influenced by you, the kindly Brontosaurus, to let you into law school just because you were there on the bench outside his office. But if you are that person, this is, you know, people talk about being in the right time, the right place. This is the kindly Brontosaurus, and we're so So often reacting to whatever is in our immediate point sphere of Mm -hmm. vision or whoever we're contacting, we're talking to right then. We're so focused on the immediate moment that if you're the person there in that moment, you can have a much higher likelihood that they'll say yes to you. I tell this situation in my book about a student who's another person who's someone you just want to say yes to. And that's the goal to me of becoming influential. It's self-development to become someone that people want to say yes to. Like Mm -hmm. Bob Goff is one of these people. You seem like you're probably one of those people, Ryan. And this student, former student of mine, um, Tiago, definitely one of them, where Tiago had asked when he was graduating as an MBA, got this job offer for a mid-level management job. He asked for a company car. They had said yes. And then they came back to him, and they were like, "Oh, sorry, Tiago. Actually, it's against our policy. We can't give people at this level a company car." Mm-hmm. And and Tiago was like, oh, "That that's okay. I understand. Is it okay if I check back later?" And they were like, "We're not going to be able to do it, but you know, you you're free to check back." Mm-hmm. And so he keeps checking back. And I knew, as his professor, like obviously he's not going to get a company car. And then he tells me at the end of the semester, he's like, guess what, Zoe, they came through, I got the car. And I have found myself consistently underestimating people because I underestimate how likely people are to say yes. I underestimate the power of the kindly Brontosaurus and just showing up. And I underestimate the power of liking And Mm -hmm. there's other research by Erica Boothby. I think this is research that I didn't discuss in the book, but um, she, I love the stream of research on what she calls the liking gap. And she finds over uh, multiple studies that when strangers meet each other, each of them likes the other one 10 to 12% more than they think the other person liked them. So like in this conversation I have no idea if you like me but I definitely like you and I can feel that and like you you just you bring this positive vibe and you've done this extensive preparation and I'm honored and I really appreciate it and you are you ensured even in our emails we exchanged before the show that absolutely the conversation was going to go well I appreciate that but like I have no idea right how it right. feels the other way and this is I, I'm
0: thing. doing m- most of it was just just for the snap judgment. After that, I can't control. I just, <laughs> just, the, just the initial piece. I'll, you'll ha- you'll, we'll have to figure out if if I'm actually likable at the by the end. I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll we'll wait. We'll wait to. Um, yeah, but this is this is a huge reason that people underestimate the likelihood that someone will say yes when they make a request by a factor of two or three. So, and this is strangers face-to-face requests on average are two or three times more likely to say yes than we think that they will be. So a lot of becoming influential is just doing more asking and stepping out of your comfort zone to ask more often. It's also drawing boundaries, saying no more often. And these are the self-development pieces.
0: Yeah, and. And you know the kindly brontosaurus and a couple of those others other ideas that you mentioned, they they kind of speak to this aspect of influence that that you know, persuasion is not something that you try really hard to do. Like I, I think people, a lot of people think that it's like I need to convince someone to change their behavior. I need to. I need to you know, try really hard to uh, using my my words and actions. I really got to try to persuade them. And, it, you know, you, you, you sort of think that, that that's actually not the right way to approach it at all. It's sort of like if you have a dog that has a toy, if you grab, if you want the toy, if you grab it and pull hard, the dog will immediately bite down and, and won't let go right? If you take an active approach, but a more passive approach, kind of speaking to that kindly brontosaurus idea where um, where you're creating a situation where it doesn't appear as though you're being influenced. It seems like that tends to be the right solution most of the time.
1: the The dog with the toy is funny. I totally agree with you about if you are trying to push or pull somebody hard they will almost certainly resist you because none of us want to be pushed around or pulled around but um the but you just you use the word make it appear that you're not trying to force them and and i would just take it even further and say absolutely to to be not trying to force anyone into anything and to be very transparent about what you want while still leaving them an easy way to say no. Mm-hmm. So it it doesn't include not following up with somebody <laughs> to right. make it easy for them to say no, but but to say something like, hey, Ryan, I have this great idea and I would love it if you wanna collaborate with me on this project, it's kind of weird, I have no idea if it's in your area of interest, where I've told you, I would love it if you would say yes, but I have no idea. Right. So I'm not dimming my desire or my enthusiasm, not trying to pretend anything, but just saying like totally fine. Like I might say you might be super busy um, or like, please don't say yes unless you really want to do this. Um, Or like if I'm hiring somebody, I will always try to ask them to sleep on the decision, even if they feel like, yes, I absolutely want to take this job. I only wanna work with someone and start this relationship with someone who feels confident that that's what they want, not just in that moment where we have this lovely connection, but when they're not with me, they're back in their real life and they have all of these other opportunities and obstacles that have come back into view that they really wanna do that. So um, I don't want to push anybody into anything, partly because I'm a nice person, partly because I respect them, but also because if I have pushed someone into saying yes, then they're just going to be trying to get out of it and that's going to make my life miserable and difficult. So even selfishly, I don't want to push people into something.
0: So let's, uh, I'm curious uh, about your thoughts. Uh, of how influence and uh, some of the ideas in your book about negotiating, uh, I'm curious about how they apply in intimate relationships. So uh, I like one idea in particular. When you talk about negotiation, you talk about this sort of use of a we language, right? It's not, I'm not trying to. Uh, win a battle with you in a negotiation. We want to find a solution that works for for both of us. And I immediately thought of sort of intimate relationships and how it applies there. Um, my first thought was sort of you know if you let's say you know you want uh, you want your partner to eat healthier, or you want them to exercise more. Well, some partners will just make a case for why they should their partner should exercise more when it would be way more effective to say hey why don't we go for a walk why don't we start tracking our 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 eating habits on, on an app or something like that it's so much more effective could you talk a little bit more about how to how to be uh, influential in an ethical way with a, with an intimate partner
1: yeah can i can I just get really nosy and ask you, Ryan, if mm-hmm. you've ever been on either side of the one partner trying to change the other partner's behavior?
0: I've I've been on both sides, but definitely quite a bit.
1: <laughs> Has there been a specific situation?
0: Oh, definitely. Uh I mean in in, in my experience, um uh it's it's usually uh I, I tend to to just allow people to, to, to be themselves. But, uh, I have had people try to change some of my, some of my personal habits for sure. Yeah.
1: Has that ever gone well?
0: Uh, typically it doesn't go that typically it doesn't go that well. Typically I make the case that, that, um, that unless I, I typically revert back to if it doesn't affect you, then we should just let each other be our own person. Yeah.
1: I totally agree with you, Ryan. Mm -hmm. So neither of us are relationship therapists. So this is like our opinion Um, from our personal experience and what we know about psychology. I am so, so um, passionate about people not trying to influence their partners, that when students take my MBA class at Yale, so I teach this course at Yale School of Management called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. It's the seven-week boot camp class of real-world challenges. So we are going out and trying to influence people, but I ask students to commit to not using these strategies on their partner, because in an intimate relationship, it's so important that we don't feel like this other person is trying to tell me what to do, trying to get me to do, trying to get things from me. Trust is more important than anything else. And trust and respect is more important than anything else in an intimate relationship. And it's not that we can't ever influence each other's behavior, but like say that you and I are in a relationship We're hanging out together, we're living together and you, and I have, Bad eating habits, and I like, and in real life for me, for all of 2022, I basically didn't exercise at all. (laughs) So I'm just trying to get back into it, and that's why I told you this morning, like I pulled a muscle. (laughs) And the if you told me, "Hey Zoe, I know you haven't been exercising, and here are all of the negative consequences that could come. You need to exercise more. Here's an app that you can use." I'd be like, "Yes, shut up and go away." but if you start exercising more and you're inviting me to go exercise with you and i see how happy you are and you're thriving exercising then i'm more likely to want to go and do that however it still may be that i'm a person who's never going to exercise and if you got into this relationship with me thinking that you were going to change me <laughs> you'll you'll probably be the disappointed person
0: yeah so and, many and people it get also
1: into- thinking that, right? Go ahead.
0: Yeah. And it, and it also, it, it goes back to where we started with sort of this ethical, ethical persuasion, right? Because anytime that you start a, any conversation with, hmm, it's like, how do I get them to think like I do? You could make the argument that it's always unethical to start a conversation with how do I get someone to think like I do, Right. How do I get, you know, I, they're wrong about uh, this president, you know, this is not the right president. So I'm going to convince you that, that uh, this is the right president or, uh, if, you know, if, if you're in an intimate relationship, it's like, like, I, I, uh, I need to convince them to be uh, a different person. I, it's possible that, that there is no right way to, to influence or persuade someone that, in in all of these cases it, maybe it's just you know the the goal of any sort of dialogue is just to share and not not ever come at it from a perspective of i need to change this person's mind because you could be wrong or changing their mind shouldn't be a goal at all
1: it's such a deep topic and i believe a really important way to be thinking about influence particularly in close relationships, when you think about how little you would like to have somebody else change your mind about something that you care deeply about. There are plenty of things that we're open to having our minds change because we don't have enough information or we don't care that deeply about it. But when we're talking about something like changing a political point of view or anything that connects with our deep values First of all, you're probably never going to convert the other person. But second of all, conversions happen in relationships. They don't happen in conversations. So in the very, very rare cases where someone does get converted to the opposite side of the view that they had, it happens over a very long time, a number of conversations with the fundamental basis of trust and respect. Mm-hmm. And and so this also tells us that if you want to be influential, especially in close relationships, but it's really everywhere. This requires that you be influenceable at all, at always, that you're not just trying to shove your point of view on someone else. Like you said, to change their mind, but you believe that you have the right answer, you know, that your ideas or values or path are superior, you're hoping that they will see the light, but you need to come to the conversation with the possibility that actually they're right. And they know some things that you don't know about the world or about their situation. And if they well, respect you, they'll listen to you and the way that they respect you is by feeling that you respect them. And the way that they get is that you actually do respect them.
0: Well, that's a great, great note to end on. Uh, Thank you so much for being on. Uh, just as a reminder, the name of the book is Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change and Making Good Things Happen. Zoe Chance, thank you so much for being on today. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Can we, Before you go, can I yeah. just ask super quickly, before we had this conversation, you said, I think everybody should do two things. Improv and jujitsu. And I want to especially ask you about jujitsu. <laughs> what does jujitsu give you as a human being? Uh
0: so in in my limited amount of training, because I'm I'm sort of uh perpetually stuck in the uh novice phase of train for a month or two and then stop and then train for a month or two and then stop. Um the uh I, I think the essence of of what I like about jujitsu is that it is, it is a very pure activity. There is no faking jujitsu. There's no talking a big game because when you're on a mat and you're sort of engaging in this submission grappling challenge, you're you know, very quickly where you stand physically and in terms of skills. And so this this uh, the cherry on top is the idea of it teaches you to be completely and utterly uh humbled when you grapple with someone that is better than you and it takes months and months to get to the point where y- you start to get your footing but yeah overall it was it, it's a it's it's a co- nice combination of the visceral and the psychological and that's that's why I encourage everyone to go and and at least take a class. I hope that that's, that's, that's convincing you to take one, yeah.
1: I love it. I feel highly motivated and I hope that you'll leave this in so listeners can be motivated too. <laughs> it's <was laughs> great talking with you.
0: All right, thank you so much Zoe Chance. Thank you. Zoe, visit zoechance.com. That's Z O E chance.com. Or pick up her book, Influence is Your Superpower The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen, wherever books are sold. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts as well. Follow on Instagram at why do we do that podcast or Twitter at wdwdtpod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at WhyDoWeDoThatPodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that?